0: Our scripture reading on this joyous Christmas morning is taken from Revelation 22:1 1 through 5. You can find that in your pew Bible on page 1041. That's 1041. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever.
1: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the word that reveals to us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of Christ And I pray, O God, that we would submit ourselves to it, that we would hear it, that we would receive it, that we would obey it. And Father, I pray that you would use the preaching of the word today to cause our hearts to long for, to love, even to be obsessed with the return of your dear Son, I pray, Lord, that we would live lives that are ready for your son's return. And I pray, Lord, that you would attend the preaching of your word with power by your spirit. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, at 11.19 p.m., my two sisters and their families are scheduled to arrive on Delta Flight 685, With nonstop service from Atlanta to Burlington. (laughs) We've been anticipating their coming for weeks. Georgia and Bethany have been cooking up all kinds of things that they want to do with their cousins. Sarah and I have been uh, talking about where everybody's going to sleep. I've been talking with my sisters about what we're going to do while they're here. We've been praying at night with our children for the Lord to bring them here safely. Ever since we heard that eight members of our family are descending on our house tonight, it's been on our minds and on our hearts. It's in our conversations. We can hardly wait for them to get here. One reason why we're so excited is because we don't doubt that they're coming. Why is it that we're so sure that they're coming? Well, it's because they said they are. My sisters are pretty trustworthy people. They said they're coming, and my experience with them gives me every reason to believe they're telling the truth. And Delta, more often than not, gets people where where they say they're going to get them around the time they say they're going to get them there. We're sure our excitement isn't going to be let down because we can trust my sister's word. And why is it that we're so excited about their coming? In part, it's because we've been waiting so long for them to get here. This was a trip that got canceled with literally hours before their flight up here last year when someone tested positive for COVID. But it's also because we know that with their arrival, we're going to see people we love and who love us. And we know that there's going to be joy and gladness when we see each other at last. There's something like that going on for Christians. There's an arrival that we're anticipating. It's an arrival that ought to be on our hearts and on our minds. It's an arrival that ought to be in our conversations because we can just hardly wait for it. It's an arrival we ought to be very sure of. Despite how trustworthy my sisters and Delta Airlines have proven to be, all kinds of things could keep my family's arrival from happening tonight, but nothing will thwart the arrival we're going to be talking about today. It's one that we can be totally sure of, and it's one that ought to get us excited as we think about what's going to happen at that arrival. So what's the arrival I'm talking about today? That question you can probably guess the answer to. But why can you be so sure of this arrival? And why should you be so excited for it? What are the things that can dull your anticipation of it? And how is it that you can grow in your eagerness for this arrival? We're going to talk about all those things this Christmas morning. Let me go ahead and identify the arrival I'm speaking of. I'm speaking, of course, of Christ's second coming. As we heard from Pastor West two weeks ago, Christ's first coming at Christmas was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament, and as we heard from Pastor Craig last week, all the Old Testament promises and prophecies concerning Christ's first coming were fulfilled in his virgin birth in royal David's city, in his life of perfect obedience, in his sacrificial and atoning death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and in his ascension and enthronement to his father's right hand. Christ's first coming as a baby in Bethlehem to die and to be buried and to be raised for his people's salvation, that has all now already taken place. And we now await his second coming, at which time he's going to do the things that we'll talk about a little later. But why is it that we can be sure that his second coming is going to happen? Well, it's because God's word says over and over and over that it's going to happen. And, as we said, if every promise and prophecy about Christ's first advent was fulfilled, then there's every reason to have assurance of the same thing happening concerning the promises and prophecies of Christ's second advent, the one we await today. Now, if you have your sermon outline handy from your bulletin, or if you find it online at cmcvermont.org slash gather, you'll see that I've given you a woefully short list of examples of passages from every part of the Bible. And we won't turn to all of the references I've included in your outline. But I've given you this to demonstrate to you that the Bible is talking about Christ's second coming at the end of the age from practically the Bible's very beginning all the way to the end. So why don't you turn with me, please, to the Bible's beginning, to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Feel free to use the pew Bible that's in the the pew rack in front of you if you didn't bring a Bible with you today. The first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Beginning in verse 10, we see that Moses, who wrote Genesis, describes the Garden of Eden. He says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. This is the Garden of Eden, the place where the Lord put the first people he created, Adam and Eve. It's a place with a river that watered the garden, the garden that provided the food that Adam and Eve were to eat. That river was a source of life, for them and so far as it watered the plants that gave Adam and Eve food. In chapter 2 and verse 9, we see that there's a tree of life. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This garden was a place where God dwelt with Adam and Eve. If you were to skip over to chapter 3 and see verse 8, you see, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So in the Garden of Eden, you have mankind, you have God, you have a river, and you have the tree of life. Now, how, how does all of this prophesy of Christ's second coming? Well, go from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. In fact, go to the passage that our sister Heather just read, Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter, the last book of the Bible. Look with me again at verses 1 through 5. And with a description of the Garden of Eden and Genesis chapter 2 and 3 in mind, listen to how the Bible describes the new heavens and new earth. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." which Jesus' people will begin to live in forever when Emmanuel comes again. Well, we've got the river of the water of life. We've got the tree of life. And once again, here is mankind dwelling in the presence of God, marked out with his name on their foreheads as God's own people, seeing him face to face. One of the ways that you can know that the whole Bible is telling the story of God dwelling with his people is because that's how the Bible begins and that's how the Bible ends. The Bible is bookended with God dwelling bodily face to face with his people in paradise. And the fact that it's bookended that way is the Bible's way of communicating that the whole book is telling the story of how the triune God accomplishes having a people for his own possession, dwelling with him, beholding his glory and unrelenting joy forever and ever. And that comes to its fullness when, when Emmanuel comes again. Of course, as we heard from the scriptures last week, God is right now dwelling with and in his people by the Spirit of Christ. But when does this dwelling come to its fullest expression? At Christ's second coming. And the very beginning of the Bible is giving us a foretaste of the consummation of the Bible. Because the Bible's ultimate author is God, who Isaiah tells us knows the end from the beginning. So we see, by just that sample from Genesis, that in the law, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, we see prophecies of Christ's second coming, of Emmanuel, come again. How about in the writings? That's another big section of the Old Testament, the law, the writings, the prophets. Is this found in the writings? Absolutely. The Psalms especially are filled with references to what will take place when Christ comes again. Psalm 22, which you might remember as the psalm that begins with the agonizing cry of Christ on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Goes on to prophesy of the day when Christ is in the midst of his brothers, his people, telling of the Father, praising the Father. Verses 27 and 28 of Psalm 22 tells of the day when all the families of the nations... People from every tribe and language and people and nation like we see in Revelation 5 will worship before the Lord, and when the Lord will rule unchallenged over the nations, those will all come to their fullest expression when Emmanuel comes again. How about Psalm 24, which we read for our call to worship? Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Yes, Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem during his first advent, but on a humble donkey to the praise of only some in Jerusalem, and he came then to die. We still are awaiting the fullest expression of David's words in Psalm 24. As Jim Hamilton put it in his commentary on Psalm 24, quote, One day, the King of glory, Yahweh of hosts, the divine warrior will come at last. The gates will hear the command to lift up their heads. The ancient doors will open, and the good shepherd will see all his sheep safely to pasture. Psalm 24 prophesies of Emmanuel, God with us, come again. How about in the prophets? My goodness, the prophets are talking about Christ's second coming all over the place. There are entire prophetic books that have as their theme the day of the Lord. Books like Zephaniah and Obadiah and Joel. The day of the Lord is the day of Christ's return. It's his second coming. In Isaiah 11, the prophet speaks of the day when all of the effects of the curse placed on creation because of Adam and Eve's sin are gone. The day of Christ's return, the day of the Lord, when, as Isaiah puts it, we read this last night in our lessons and carols, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. He's prophesying of a day when there's no longer bloodthirstiness and death and enmity between creation because of sin's curse. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf shall lie down together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, Christ, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In Isaiah 65, we're further told concerning what will happen at Christ's return. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. You know, John's got that passage in mind when he writes in Revelation chapter 21. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I've read some scholars who've asserted that the prophets say more about Christ's coming, an event that they refer to as the day of the Lord, even more than they do about his first coming. And if, as we've said, if their prophecies about Christ's first coming all came to pass with total accuracy as they did, how can you then not live with surety about their prophecies of Emmanuel's return? How about in the New Testament? Of course, the New Testament is filled with references and allusions to Christ's second coming, many from the mouth of Jesus himself. In Matthew 24, Jesus says that at his return, the Son of Man, that's uh, Jesus' title for himself that he uses dozens of times. The Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory using language from Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7. And he'll gather his elect, his people from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about his return and the judgment that will take place when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. He's talking about the judgment that's going to separate his people from those who are not his people as the shepherd separates sheep from the goats, In Mark 14, at Jesus' trial before his crucifixion, the Lord invokes Daniel 7 again as he prophesies of his second coming. The high priest asks Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And they begin to cruelly treat Jesus because of his supposed blasphemy in their eyes. In Acts chapter 1, As Jesus is ascending to heaven following his death, burial, and resurrection, in full view of his apostles, Luke says that the apostles gazed into heaven as Jesus went up. And behold, two men appeared in white robes and said to them, This Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It doesn't get any plainer than that. How about in the letters? In the New Testament. To the Romans, Paul says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us at Christ's return. To the Thessalonians, Paul says that Christ himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The writer of Hebrews tells his audience to live in light of Christ's return, stirring one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, Christ's return, drawing near. Peter tells his suffering audience, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. John writes in 1 John 3, this glorious truth about Christ's return. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know when he appears, when Emmanuel comes again, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You'll see I just totally punted on giving you references to Revelation in the outline. I couldn't even figure out what to give you as sample references to Christ coming in the book of Revelation. Practically the whole book is about Emmanuel coming again. Now why am I taking such great pains to make the point that I'm making here in Roman numeral one of your outline? It's because I want you to see at the risk of belaboring the point that the bible is replete in both testaments and in every section of both testaments with references to christ's second coming and why does that matter it matters because every word of this book is true if god has said something it will come to pass He has the power to bring to pass whatever he promises. You can take it to the bank. In fact, you can stake your eternity to it. And God is saying all over this book, my son is going to come again. And if his promises concerning Christ's first coming, which are inevitably also promises concerning Christ's second coming, you can hardly separate those two things from the perspective of prophecy. If God's promises concerning Christ's first coming came to pass, what's the only reasonable thing to conclude about the prophecies of Christ's second advent? That they are going to happen too, just as the Lord said, because he only says what's true and because he has the power and authority to make sure that his promises are going to be fulfilled. Now, let's spend some time talking about what things will be like at the Lord's return. You'll see from your outline that Emmanuel's coming again will be a time of salvation. And you say, well, Pastor Mitch, I'm already saved. Yes, you are. And you're going to be saved at the last day. Your salvation has begun, but it's not complete. The writer of Hebrews says, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 1, chapter 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Christ's return is going to be a day of salvation because the golden chain of redemption from Romans chapter 8, verse 30 hasn't yet been finished. In that verse, Paul says that those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. We haven't been glorified yet. When's that going to happen? At Christ's return, when we're raised in a moment, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, when the dead will be raised imperishable, and the mortal will put on immortality, and will finally say, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? Christ's return is for his people a day of salvation. It's the day when we'll experience Psalm chapter 16 verse 11 where the psalmist writes, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. On the day of salvation at Christ's return, we will come to our heavenly bridegroom who will have finished his work of presenting us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. On the day of salvation, at Emmanuel's return, will come to pass the vision John saw. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. By the way, I I have to tell you, I'm struck every time I read that it's a loud voice on the throne who says that. Because who's the one who occupies the throne? It's God, of course. And he says with a loud voice, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Why is God saying that? And why is he saying it with a loud voice? In the garden, God was dwelling bodily with mankind. Didn't we see that back in Genesis chapter 3? There's Adam and Eve in the garden, there's God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then here comes the serpent. And he tempts Adam, and he tempts Eve. And they succumb to his temptation, and they sin. And after that, gone is fellowship with God bodily between man and God. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They're forbidden from going back into the garden at pain of death by two angels with flaming swords blocking their entrance. Gone is man's dwelling with God. And immediately, God's on the scene prophesying the coming of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and who would cause God once again to dwell with man. And we get glimpses all throughout the scriptures, don't we? God dwells with Israel. There's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He descends into the Holy of Holies with his glory at the tabernacle and later at the temple. Of course, the dwelling to end all dwellings, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then when the Son left to go back to heaven, he says, If I don't leave, then the helper won't come. The helper is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. It's the way that Jesus can be telling the truth when he says, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So all throughout the scriptures, we see that though paradise was lost, man dwelling bodily with God was lost, God's showing us all the way that it's his aim through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son to get us back to him. And so at the very end, when salvation has reached its culmination, the voice from the throne says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Do you ever stop and think about what are some things that are on the list of former things that will have passed away? You ought to do that sometime. You're feeling a little crummy just write down a list of some former things that will have passed away on that day. Death, mourning, crying, pain, sickness, disease, relational strife, anxiety, hospitals, cemeteries, joylessness, Discontentment, anger, jealousy, evil thoughts, greed, wicked words, all sin. No sin. Not in you, not in anyone. Can you even begin to imagine a place like that? What would a society be like that? Can you imagine never again warring against a sinful desire or thought because every impulse you have is Godward and good? Can you imagine unceasing joy that never diminishes, even though yesterday and all the 10 trillion yesterdays before that were all filled with unceasing joy, too? And the one who's on the throne wipes every tear from their eyes, John sees and with your eyes at last undiminished undimmed and unclouded revelation 22 offers this promise they will see his face on that day of salvation with real physical eyes you will look you will look into the face of the one whom your soul loves the face of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is Christ's return, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, a day of salvation for you? It's because the Lord Jesus faced a day of judgment on the cross. Emmanuel coming again will be a day of joy for you because Emmanuel endured for you a day of agony on the cross. It's going to be a day of the dwelling place of God being with man because Christ was exiled from God's presence on the cross, suffering in your place, bearing the wrath that you deserved for your sins. He was crushed for your iniquities. He was pierced for your transgressions and placed on him was the chastisement that brought you peace, bearing wounds that killed him but healed you eternally in love for the Father. In an obedience to the Father and in love for his bride, the church, Emmanuel came and he died and his death has brought to you eternal life. His day of judgment at Calvary is why his return will be for you, brother and sister, a day of salvation. But it will not only be a day of salvation. Relatedly, it's going to also be a day of victory. First for Christ. Now, of course, we must acknowledge that Christ already rules over the universe from his throne in heaven. Already, Jesus has told his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Already, the Son of Man has received the dominion foretold in Daniel 7. And yet, Satan still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the last enemy, death, has not yet been defeated, as Paul said to the Corinthians. But Christ's return will be a day of victory, because at his return, all his enemies will be put under his feet. They will all have been made a footstool for his feet, as Psalm 110 prophesies. At Christ's return, according to Revelation 20, the last enemy will be defeated. John writes, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 19 is a vivid picture of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ laying waste to all of his enemies, all of them slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the white horse, the one called Faithful and True. And because it will be a day of victory for Christ, it will be a day of victory for his people. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is going to be thrown into the lake of fire In fact, Paul comforted the Thessalonians by telling them that at the last day their enemies would be met with Christ's vengeance. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. It will be a day of salvation and a day of victory, and it will be a day of judgment. All these ideas, salvation for Christ's people, victory over all of Christ's enemies, judgment on Christ's enemies, they're not, they're not separate. They're all very interrelated. And it's Christ himself who's going to dole out the judgment on that day. In Acts chapter 17, Paul's preaching in Athens, Greece, and he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he raised from the dead. That's the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that when he returns, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. It's Jesus who will sort all of humanity on the day when Emmanuel comes again. On his right will be those to whom he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And on his left will be those to whom he says, Depart from me, you cursed, to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. When Emmanuel comes again, the day we are longing for, it will be a day of salvation for his people, a day of complete and total victory over all his enemies, and a day of judgment when the Lord Jesus himself will reward those who belong to him and condemn to eternal punishment those who have not believed on him. Now, what should be our response to what we've heard from the scriptures today? If you see the outline, you'll see that I'm using the language of loving Emmanuel's appearing in all of the application points. That's from 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul writes to his son in the faith, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you hear that? The crown of righteousness is going to be awarded by the Lord, the righteous judge, on the day of Christ's return to all who have loved his appearing. That's why I'm using that language. Because Paul said those who are rewarded at Christ's return are those who've loved his appearing. That's not a special class of people. That's Christians. And Christians, Paul is saying here, love Christ's appearing. Now I want to say first to you who are outside of Christ. You can love his appearing. And you will be among those who are rewarded when Emmanuel comes again by repenting and believing the gospel. And that is the only way, the only way for the day of Christ's return to be for you a day of salvation and victory. If you die in your sins, if you never forsake your sins and believe on Christ, you will incur the wrath of the Lamb at his return. my friend who's here on Christmas Day, but is outside of Christ. You can ask the Lord. In fact, I plead with you, no matter your age, no matter how many times you've come to a church service, I plead with you to ask the Lord to be merciful to you and to save you from your sins and to save you from the wrath of Emmanuel. Don't be cast into the eternal lake of fire when what's being offered to you today is a better gift than anything you're going to get from under the tree. It's eternity in a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. It's an eternity free from sin and every effect of the fall of the curse of sin. It's an eternity where you dwell face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the most lovely and excellent one in all of creation. That's what's being held out to you. Dear unbeliever, eternal, unending joy with God. So I plead with you to receive Christ today. Ask God to give you the grace to turn from your sin and to believe the gospel today. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, how is it that we apply the certain hope of Emmanuel's coming to our lives? How do we live lives that reflect that we love Christ's appearing. Well, first I'd say to you, let's work to make others ready for Emmanuel's coming. I wish you could have heard my brother, Dick Bergeron, praying at men's prayer this past Friday morning. We were thinking before we went to prayer about loving Christ's appearing, and Dick was praying for himself and for the rest of us in the circle that we would witness to others in light of these truths, so that they too may live with the hope that we live with. And Dick's attitude is exactly right. Until Jesus returns, there will be those for whom Jesus died, who we have to get the gospel to so that they can be saved. The Bible says in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. We don't know who's going to believe on Christ because of the Lord using our witness, but we can be sure that no one's gonna believe on Christ because of our witness if we never witness, if we never invite others to church services or to gospel events. The only way any sinner is gonna be able to come to love Christ's appearing is if he or she is born again, and no one will ever be born again until someone gets the gospel to them. So, brothers and sisters, we love Christ's appearing by being jealous with a holy jealousy for adding to the multitude that will eternally sing praises to the Lamb around his throne. We love Christ's appearing by looking for ways to build relationships with people as on-ramps to gospel conversations and church invitations. We love Christ's appearing by dying to ourselves, by dying to our fear of man, our fear of rejection, our fear of being asked a question we don't know the answer to, by dying to ourselves and being willing to identify with Christ to a co-worker or to a family member or to a fellow mom or dad. We love Christ's appearing Christians by working to add to those who will love Christ's appearing. Second, brothers and sisters, we love Christ's appearing by forsaking this world. I think one of the biggest reasons why we're not more eager for Christ's return is because there's too much love with this world. Now let me warn you with love. It is not a minor thing to be in love with this world. In Jesus' parable of the sower, the seed that fell onto the third soil, it grew up, but then it was choked out. And Jesus said that that represents those who hear the word, but the cares of the world... And the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful and an unfruitful plant as we've been seeing in Luke's gospel gets cut down and destroyed. And what is it Jesus says that causes the seed that's thrown onto the third soil not to bear fruit? It's the cares of the world. The world that John says in 1 John 2 is passing away along with its desires. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy of Demas. Demas. He's listed in Philemon and Colossians as a co worker of Paul, but by 2 Timothy, at the end of Paul's life, Demas is nowhere to be found. Why? He's deserted the apostle and, in all likelihood, the gospel too. And Paul says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. In love with this present world. So I'm saying to you, my brother and sister, Fight with all you've got to forsake this world. Don't make it your aim to get to heaven as comfortably as you can. No, if that's your aim, you're in danger of loving this world and not making it to heaven at all. Be clear that this life is a time of war against the evil one. It's a time of war against sin. This life is a time of striving against sin and sharing and suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. It's a time of denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus. It's not yet the time when you're going to experience fullness of joy and pleasures at his right hand forevermore. Yes, Yes, a thousand times yes, there is joy now in the gospel and in Christ and there are pleasures that he grants us. But those are designed only to whet your appetite for the joy and the pleasures to come face to face with Christ. Be clear, dear ones, that this life is not when those things are yours to the full. That's the life to come when unceasing bliss and joy and an end to all hardship is to be found. So set your expectations. Don't look to try and have your cake and eat it too, trying to have paradise here and there. No. If you make your chief aim to have paradise here, you won't have paradise there. And so, with your time, With your priorities, with your money, with your attention, with your hobbies, with your leisure, in every way, love Christ's appearing and not this present world. Finally, brothers and sisters, we respond to the sure and certain truth of a man you will come again by fixing our gaze on that day. Two of the New Testament books that have the most to say about Christ's second coming and how we're to live in light of that are 1 Peter and Revelation. I've already quoted 1 Peter 1.13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as I've said, Revelation is essentially one teaching about Christ's second coming after the other. But Revelation, and indeed the whole Bible, ends with a prayer for Christ's return. Before the benediction that closes the Bible, we find this short prayer from John. Come, Lord Jesus! And why is it that books like 1 Peter and Revelation say so much about Christ's return? it's at least because their audiences were enduring so much suffering and so much persecution for their faith in Christ. John is writing for Pete's sake while he's exiled on some rocky outcrop, the island of Patmos, because of his faith in the Lord Jesus. So, fixing your gaze on that day. When you're a believer, you can receive sufferings as a mercy from the Lord because it looses your grip on this life and it lifts up your head so that you're ever looking for the day of the Lord. Our brother and sister Paul and Tilza Bushner are in the hospital on this Christmas day. Tilza wasn't able to go down to Florida to visit family for Christmas and she wasn't able to go home for Christmas. And as I spoke with Paul the other night, it was clear that they're receiving these sufferings as a severe mercy, as a kind providence from the Lord. These sufferings have, for Paul and Tilza, just loosened their grip on this life. It made them ache more and more and more for the life to come, for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. To their persecuted audiences, Peter and John talk and talk about Christ's return, Because that's the antidote to despair for the believer, no matter the circumstances. Fixing your hope, setting your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the salvation and the victory that's going to be yours in Christ on that day, at the ability to look into Jesus' wonderful face, at the ability to, at last, embrace bodily the one who died for you and who has interceded for you nonstop as your merciful and faithful high priest. No longer to be bodily here while Jesus is bodily there. No, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And so if you're seeing that loving Christ's appearing is a growth area for you, how is it that you can grow in fixing your gaze on that day? And we've talked about embracing suffering as a help. You can grow in prioritizing being around those who are also looking forward to that day. That is your fellow believers. Every other relationship you have, every other one, be it with family or friends or coworkers, is going to end at your death or theirs, if not before, if both of you aren't Christians. But saints, look around you. 10,000 years from now, you're going to be fellowshipping with those around you. We'll be fellowshipping with each other and with Christ. And so I say to you, prioritize being with those who have the same hope. Make it a priority to be here on Sunday morning. To be a real part of this gathering, not just a spectator or some kind of consumer. Pray for these folks. Make it a priority to gather with them in community group and in the other ways that we gather. You can grow in fixing your gaze on Emmanuel's return and grow in loving his appearing by giving yourself an occasion to think on Emmanuel and his return. Add to your podcast rotation those podcasts that build you up in the faith. Do you need some ideas, let me know. I'm glad to help. The same with music and the same with Books. Maybe don't use your weekend to binge-watch something on Netflix. Ask a couple of your brothers or sisters to embark on a Bible reading or Bible memorization plan with you. Read good books on Christ's return. You need suggestions? Let me know. Memorize Revelation 21, 1-4, 22, 1-5, or 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. And just say them out loud to yourself when you need encouragement. That's what Paul said that those verses in 1 Thessalonians 4 are designed for. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I'm just saying to you that you're going to need to put Christ and his return before your eyes on purpose if you're going to grow in loving his appearing. You will not drift into loving his appearing, but certainly you can drift into your love for his appearing growing cold. Expect his appearing. Jesus says in Matthew 24, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Paul said to the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night and that believers should not live sleepily regarding Christ's return, but keeping awake and sober, always ready, always waiting. Did you know, brother and sister, that it's entirely reasonable for the Christian to go to sleep at night like a kid on Christmas Eve thinking, he might come tonight. Or to wake up in the morning saying, today could be the day. And then pray for that day. That's what John's doing in Revelation 22 when he says, come Lord Jesus. That's a prayer, come Lord Jesus. In the Lord's prayer, we prayed for Christ's return. In just a moment, when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, Sing it as a prayer to the Father to send Emmanuel to come to his people. Don't let your desires, desires to get married or to have children or to see grandchildren, even good desires like wanting to see loved ones saved before Christ comes back, don't let any desires pour water on the fire in your heart to see the Lord Jesus arrive in the clouds of heaven in power and great glory to set all things aright. Those who will receive the crown of righteousness on the last day are those who've loved Christ's appearing. So make it your business to love his appearing. And when his appearing involves all that we've talked about today, what about his appearing isn't to love? It's a day of salvation. It's a day of victory. It's a day of judgment of our Lord's enemies. It's a day when we will see him face to face. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sure and certain hope from your word concerning the return of your son. Father, I pray that these friends of mine who at your son's return would cry out for the rocks and hills to fall on them rather than face the wrath of the lamb. I pray that they would be made yours even today so that they can love your son's appearing. And I pray that you would help these brothers and sisters of mine to grow less and less and less enamored with this world, to forsake this world, and to grow in loving Christ's appearing, to grow in longing for the day of his return. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.